welcome. My guest today is my wife, my life partner for almost a third of a century. Somebody with a fascinating story, an important role in the book, Raising a Thief, and all sorts of other things. Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for a wonderful introduction. So let's start off before we jump in. Who are you for people who haven't been acquainted with the phenomena that is Marina Klimova? Where'd you grow up? What do you do? What's your story? Well, I was born in Siberia in the country that no longer exists, the USSR. And prior to marrying you, mister, and moving to the States, I had been living in Pakistan, Bulgaria, and also Moscow. I am a mom. I am a full-time therapist. I have my own private practice. I am a marriage and family therapist. Podcast, podcast star. A podcast star today, yes. This is your second one. Somebody else reached out to you as well. That's, that's right, yeah. Let's start with the stuff people are seeing in the headlines. So we're all watching these headlines that are horrific mm-hmm. um, in a degree of detail about a conflict, you know, war crimes. And I think it's disturbing for all of us watching it. But then you have a perspective that's probably much closer to many of the people who listen to this podcast. You've got a mom, a mother-in-law in Moscow, who's uh, for readers of the, my, my essays, they know she's uh, unlike you strong Putin supporter. Then we have the person who took care of our son when he was little, Her, your mom's older sister who lives in Ukraine. We both traveled to Ukraine, but you spent time there as a child, Todd. Uh, correct, correct. How, how could you, is there any way of trying to share for people that didn't have your upbringing, what it's like to process these images, this the fact of this horrible invasion? Well, it's obviously horrifying and uh, incredibly depressing. My friends, my Russian friends and I probably spend a good three, four hours every single day glued to the news. And um, it's it's a blow. I, I was not surprised, unfortunately, that this happened. I think <sighs> there are so many things to, to talk about. Can you narrow down the question? This is an issue the same way a little bit maybe Trumpism split the U.S. This is like a much more dramatic version of that. And it's something that's in, you know, our family and in your family. What's, you know, what's it like to, I'm going to air this podcast on Mother's Day. So your mom is a diehard supporter of everything that we find really objectionable. Mm. What What is that like to have that conversation with her? Very difficult, excruciatingly difficult. And I think mm. that talking about my mom, if I talk about my mom, I have to talk about a little bit about the the, the concept of trauma, really trauma. The, um, the easiest definition of trauma that I can think of is it is a negative event that exceeds your ability to cope. Mm. whatever it is, and just think about society where people lived in this mode for centuries. Right. When the negative um, event exceeded their ability to cope. To cope. 
Again right. and again and again and again. So we're talking about layers and layers of that stuff. So at some point, what is abnormal, which essentially is anomaly, becomes normal mm. to those people. Mm. Another thing about trauma is that the negative charge of that trauma is so huge that everything becomes secondary. Mm -hmm. Thus, trauma becomes your main identity. Mm. Right? Yeah, that seems that seems like a very rich, accurate encapsulation of your mom. Because I think of her as married way too young, but should have been a boyfriend, became her husband. True, because in the a kiss, an exchange of, you know, kisses, you need to get married. Then the husband turns out to be himself, very traumatized, World War II vet, vicious alcoholic. Then she's growing up under Stalin. Mm -hmm. People are disappearing, who she is growing up with, mm -hmm. as happened to so many people there. And then she loses two of her own children. And it just goes on and on and on and on. So she's been so rattled. And then, and then immersed daily in propaganda for decades. That's right. So it's sort of a mentality that I think is hard for outside. It's, it's, I know her. It's hard for me to fathom what I talk with her on the phone. That doesn't sound like it's, mm -hmm. sounds like you are able to make sense of it, but mm -hmm. on a logical level, but emotionally, it's still crazy. It's very difficult. And I was speaking, going back to my mom, I think that she's kind of carrying two types of traumas. She's carrying a generational trauma right? Mm. That was transmitted for many generations from one generation to another. And she's carrying this deeply personal relational trauma. Wait, what's the generational trauma from generation to generation? What are you referring to? Well, if you live, okay, just think about the previous century, 21st century. 20th. The 20th More than 21st, yeah. right? Okay. Well, whatever, <laughs> 19 plus, okay. <laughs> Revolution, civil war, you know, Lenin's I repression, Stalin's yeah. repression, Second World War, Hitler, right? Got it. Deprivations, hunger, starvation, all of right. those things happening inside Russia. So you live and breathe trauma. There's nothing else. Right. And then I think my mom, who was so severely beaten by life, mm -hmm. it's... You know, she's the dependent time. She needs protection. And that protection is Mr. S Mr. Putin. And it's called, you know, trauma bond. It's Stockholm syndrome thingy. When a victim, what would be the word? Help me with the word. When a victim... Um, begins to realize that, the, begins to view the person that is... Uh, the oppressor as the savior. That's correct. Yeah, right. There's also this element, too, that I think is difficult for many outsiders to understand, which is there was a moment, actually, during our heated romance, when there was a much more optimistic possibility for Russia that seemed there. It was the early 1990s. It was chaotic. But definitely the lurch seemed to be going in the direction of transparency. Oh, yeah. And I remember that there's a brief period of time they opened up the KGB archives and people could actually... I'm not sure that they, they opened archives, Paul. They they did it in Germany. I think to researchers, they allowed... To not, researchers. Not for everybody, but right. they allowed people mm -hmm. to go in and begin to see this horrific thing that, it, you know, this tentacles, this awful state. But now it's all closed up and it's going back to something like North Korea. So to see this in such a rapid period of time, 
it's a reminder of how much flux some people have had to live with. It's got to be kind of like whiplash, Soviet Union, then chaotic freedom, then Putinism. Well, you know that after February the 24th, a lot of Russians left the country. And I'm talking about tens of thousands, if not hundreds. I think it's 300,000 as the figures I've seen. Okay, see, you know, better than me. So those are obviously the, the people who are very much in the opposition with the war. Right. A lot of the world, the word war itself, if you use the word war, can land a prison sentence up to 15 years yeah. right now. In other words, you can kill a person and get a lesser sentence. Think about that. So people are afraid. And people who are left in Russia, I think they belong to, to one of the two groups. Mm-hmm. Either the ignorant ones, like my mm-hmm. mom, mm-hmm. or the ones living in fear. Let's shift gears a little bit. There was a chapter exclusively focused on you and raising a thief. And it talks about your very unusual background. Better hearing from you than me trying to tell your story in the book. You grew up in this household that is not a very supportive place, but you turn out to be this amazing person. And so that you've attributed to uh, understanding how attachment works and particularly the role of Shura. Mm-hmm. So describe who she was and what role she played in your life. Okay. She was my, I think, first and the only nanny. And I was still a very, I'm not sure if I was preverbal, but I definitely was a toddler or, or younger than a toddler. My father was a severe alcoholic. My mom was struggling. She was working full time. And at some point... She realized she's not making it. So she decided to hire a babysitter. So she put a post in a local newspaper and she only get one, got one response. And that was from this woman. Shura means it's a short for Alexandra. All right. It's a nickname for Alexandra. This woman, Alexandra, Uh, met with my mom and she said, listen, sweetie, I spent 27 years in prison um, cumulatively. So if you trust me, I'll be your best friend. Now, if you don't trust me, I'll just rob you. So yes. And my mom, you know, took a few minutes, digested that information and, um, not having any other options, she said, all right, let's give it a try. So that's how Tutu Shura appeared in my life. And she became my, she loved me to pieces. She was my best protector. Well, obviously I was very safe with her. She would indulge me like crazy, allowing me to play on the floor with the flower, making a mess. And I don't know, it's like, I remember getting a lot of, affection and love from her yes yeah you told me one story about her that i I loved that you you guys were living at the time in a log cabin in a formal penal colony Mm -hmm. in russia Mm -hmm. without running water they brought in the water by barrels and 
I got all this from, from talking to your mom. And then you said that she loved you so much that if you burnt the log cabin down, you knew she would have defended you and said <laughs> that you was some sort of pretend play that you were engaged in and that, you know, nobody could blame you. You know, that's what a kid needs, basically, to have somebody, somebody, it doesn't just have to be mom and dad, at those early years who is backing them 100%. The kid knows that, that they are safe and secure with that person. And it's probably, it's, it's a miracle, really, because you're the one person of that whole surrounding of families that, you know, your sister, your mom, your sister's children, et cetera, who basically came out intact. Well, I'm not sure about intact, but let's say more... More functioning. Oh well, you're intact. You're intact enough to be married to me for 28 years and to run your own business and to raise kids. So that's a pretty high level of function. Okay. Very few people in the world would put up with me. Yeah, that's so true. I suggest actually a high degree of function. <laughs> then you have not one but two kidnapping episodes before the age of 10. Correct. Yeah. The first you, one. You the first one stories? was. Um, I was kidnapped by Tia Shura, the same, um, my nanny, cause she loved me so much. I guess she wanted me for herself. She had only I had to get you away of crazy town. So she purchased, um, tickets, train tickets. And I believe her only relatives were living somewhere in Ukraine. So we were supposed to go all the way to Ukraine from Siberia. Which which is like taking a train from like Alaska to Texas. It would be, it would have been probably a few days. And, uh, but then she really felt bad about this and she um, got out of the train and went back home. Mm. The second time my kidnapping was a little more, had more negative consequences. I was living in Pakistan, in Karachi with my parents. Mm -hmm. And I was mm -hmm. kidnapped from a social club. And an interesting mm -hmm. thing about that experience that I have zero memory. It's called mm -hmm. amnesia, which is the like the ultimate protective. Right. It's like Jason Bourne. That's correct. When you cannot flee physically, you flee mentally. That's what mm -hmm. amnesia is. Mm -hmm. So I do not have any recollection of that experience. Yeah, and I was later on found by the Karachi police and brought me home. I would not, I did not talk for a, for a few days. Mm -hmm. And it's unclear whether I was drugged or I was just very traumatized. And although I do not have any recollections of the experience itself, I remember very vividly the immediate change in my mood and how I felt about myself. Mm. What was it? Well, if I have if if I have to use adult words, mm -hmm. it would be a a general sense of unsafety, mm -hmm. loss of security, very high anxiety. And if you have to use kid words at the time, how would a kid describe it at that time? Do you think? See, I didn't have. Unfortunately, I did not have the vocabulary for that. And my parents were not super helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. So that's probably why it was so hard mm. because it always is easier for a kid mm -hmm. 
when a caring adult is able to put a label. Yeah, you name it, you tame it. So mid-1980s, things begin to change. So when did you, when did it occur to you that the, or when did you begin to feel that the Soviet Union might actually collapse? Or was it only clear at the very end when there was the coup in 91? Well, n- no, it was only clear at the very end. Mm-hmm. The idea is that the country will get disintegrated. Did never occur to me. Amazing. Well, I never liked. I'm just talking about these huge changes, and it's so hard to envisage them. Mm-hmm. I never liked where I was living, mm-hmm. but the idea is that it will break out like this. Somehow, never, never occurred to me. Right. What's it's it's an obvious question, but sometimes the simplest questions are the best. What's so awful about living under an authoritarian regime? You lived under one for years. I think different people will give you different reasons. For me personally, it was, let's see how I can frame it. To me, it boiled down to an impossibility to have an opinion. Mm. Yeah. That I found always deeply, deeply insulting. Yeah. What about the one thing that always shocked me about the Soviet system was that it basically taught people how to lie in the sense that the school system, you had to repeat things that everybody understood were not true. And that process of knowing one thing that's true, but then saying something else is such a bizarre training to put yourself through. But Mm -hmm. that sort of institutionalized lying also seemed to be a big feature of that and other authoritarian systems. Right. Yes, of course. And you learn how to numb it, but I would not say that it's only happening in Russia. I think you will you will yeah, find true. something similar in perhaps a US corporate culture. Sure. Or even I would say, you know, people now who have to say that the It's toned down. Give, give ambiguous yeah. give give ambiguous answers on whether the election was stolen or not. So I wrote in my post about Governor DeSantis of Florida, who clearly would like to become president of the United States, and a portion of his supporters believe the election was stolen. He's a Harvard Law School graduate. I think he knows very well mm-hmm. that the election wasn't mm-hmm. stolen, mm-hmm. but he basically mm-hmm. needs to be wishy-washy around that, yes. which is yes. a form of the same type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Then there is the 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 wild romance for this crazy American, and you come to the United States, and the transition. I have my own perspective on it, but it's one thing to visit a country, another thing to emigrate. What was that first couple of years like emigrating to the United States? And even though as heavy as the Russian system could be, that huge shift, what 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 was nice? What was really unpleasant? Oh, nice. Among nice things, I will just name very practical things. So it was much easier to care for a newborn, for example. What was very difficult is loneliness. Intense, intense, prolonged loneliness. Not having your circle anymore of all those great friends in Moscow. Yeah. Yeah, and that form of socializing, that was so much fun. And the United States is more isolating in that way. Oh yeah, I think in the US is a pretty lonely society. One thing I remember early on with you you said this really deep thing that I don't know if I put in the book or not, but I've repeated it to many people. We'll turn to your therapy stuff in a second. But 
you said, everybody fights. It all depends how you fight. And I remember that first time when we were in the US. Oh my goodness, we had some whoppers and I certainly didn't know how to fight. Hopefully we, we got a little a little wiser. Mister? I think we did. So what's your advice to people, for people who are listening who are recently married and trying to figure out how to fight well? They're going to fight, but how you learn how to fight well. What's what's your advice for them? Oh my God, it's um, so many. Um, first of all, don't, never avoid a good fight. Okay. Never avoid a fight because... People who do not fight yeah. are not necessarily happy. Interesting. Moreover, I will put very high probability that they are unhappy, but they've been unhappy for so long that they don't even try to talk to each other. You can frame a fight as a wrong effort to connect, mm. right? So when you stop fighting, you basically stop trying to connect. Fighting, how to fight, it's another thing. And yeah, well, that's actually when I work with couples and couples are uh, today roughly 70% of all my clients, how we fight, we literally spend hours on talking about that, laying out the, the ground rules. Well, you know, without going into details. And I would say, realize your individual victory always means a relational loss. loss. Yeah. Okay. So if you win individually, think about the consequences. Think about if you need to win individually. Mm, right. Another thing is you cannot be influential in the relationship. And we all want to be influential without actually accepting the influence. What characteristics do you need to possess? Or you need to develop them to be able to do that. That's a tough one. Because accepting influence is not easy. Yeah, we amen fight. to that. Amen uh, to that. That'll be that'll be a topic <laughs> for another conversation. Then there is, you know, building your family here, and we decide to one biological child, then we try to adopt, and we we adopt our daughter. And that that turns out to be almost like the mere opposite of your experience with Tioti Shura, which is, whereas Shura was your protectorate, our daughter didn't have that for her first 16 months of life. Mm -hmm. And um, we didn't know what, we didn't have words for that then, we do now. But what was that, what was that experience like trying to bring her into your family and raise her and then, you know, realize that something was, something was not right and put a name on it and that whole process. You know, it's interesting. I'll talk about this a little bit from a, not like Marina, but a little bit like a psychotherapist. When I think back about those years with Sonia, all I remember I basically dissociate them. I don't remember much. Hmm. And I know clinically why I don't remember much. I mean, yes, I have, of course, cognitive memory of like horrifying events, mm -hmm. events so painful, but I somehow don't have a lot of em emotional memory. That's my way of coping with that. Mm -hmm. It was basically parting with a lot of my personal dreams mm. it was probably for 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 what 
What would you say more about the personal dreams you're uh, Dream of having a child who would love back, basically. Mm. And not only me, because the question is much more than just the relationship between Sonia and me. It's about between in relation between Sonia and the whole wild, wide world. Mm-hmm. So it's probably it probably was the most painful time of my life. Yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah. And so it's so difficult for people who don't have kids with what our daughter has attachment disorder to understand that it's not any one single thing. It's the accumulation of hundreds and hundreds of small things that corrode any sense of peace or trust in the world. Well, that's why no matter what type of client I am working with, Mm -hmm. I always look at his or her attachment history. Yeah. Because it can shed a lot of light on many things. Final perspective on this. So after watching what happened with our daughter, you look at the enormously positive role a good therapist can have in somebody's life. And the therapist who helped us, uh, I think, strengthened our marriage, strengthened our family, was a big influence. The gentleman and uh, the person I call the wizard of New Mexico. And you decide, because he was based in New Mexico, so you decide to pursue this yourself, mm-hmm. which is a hugely courageous thing to do. Uh, already your third career, because you were a translator, that you were a teacher, that you say, no, now I'm going to become a psychotherapist. And of course, psychotherapists didn't exist in the Soviet Union in the way that we think of them here. So describe the whole, the, the, the courage to switch careers and then what it's been like to sort of become an expert in this field and now have famous hospitals like Yale call you up and try to refer difficult cases to you, et cetera. Um, it's so funny because you, 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 and I heard it so many times from you, Paul, that, oh, uh, it's so courageous, you know, and I don't feel it at all. I actually feel, so I went to grad school, was it 11 years ago? That was compared to dealing with Sonia. Mm. It was it was a piece of cake. It, it was, was so easy. And I remember students at grad school and we had, you know, students, anything from 20 you know, people in the uh, young 20s to people in their, I think, mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And people were complaining how hard it is. And it, mm-hmm. for me, it was easy. Mm-hmm. 
because I had some, you know, I, uh, what was it called? I, the, the other option, what, what I knew at home was much more difficult. Somehow it happened very organically for me. I really didn't, don't feel like I worked hard, I worked hard. I mean, I did, but I have been interested in psychology for such a long time. And I had been, even before grad school, I had been reading a ton. At, at, so I don't know, somehow it happened very uneventfully for me in a very uneventful way. So now you see all these people and describe a little bit, what's the, what are the, I think if we think about diet, we know what the basics are, which is eat fruits and vegetables, don't eat cake, hard for me to do that one. It's a little, a little bit more complicated than that, okay? Well, I know, but with the diet, the, there's basic mm -hmm. guidelines. So in terms of mental health, what are the key things? And I think that probably people know the basics, you know, have meaningful relationships and get decent sleep and blah, 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 all these things. But you're looking at lots of people with intense struggles in their life. What are what are some of the keys to get through? Look, it's a million dollar question, okay? That's why I'm asking you. Gee, I'm probably not that smart, but my... You know, I'm an attachment therapist. I, I attach an extraordinary importance to the right attachment for the successful functioning mm -hmm. life. So I think, I mean, a lesson to all of us is, well, become a good attachment figure to your own kid. Mm. Because this mm. way you will allow your kid to reach his or her potential to be a... Uh, conscientious, empathetic, curious, uh, thoughtful, non-reactive human being. Isn't that wonderful? And the people who seek help, what are the range of, of challenges they're having and, are what, and, and, and what are some of the root cause of those challenges? Obviously, without violating patient confidentiality. Well, since, since, right, since, since most, most of my work is now working with couples, I would say, you know, a certain portion will be extramarital affairs, mm. all types of transgressions. But for the most part, it's just people drifting away, hmm. growing apart. And what do you attribute the frequency of that popping up to? How come that's so common? Well, I think as an economist, you may have some answers to that. A lot of people work such long hours. Well, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we are in Westport. If you live mm -hmm. in New York, if you work in New York, mm -hmm. pretty much you come home to sleep, mm -hmm. right? Eat and sleep. Think about what you're able to, what kind of connection you're able to have with your kids if you live mm -hmm. like this. It's like a work-life balance thing. That's right. In part. But, you know, many, many, many reasons. But disconnect. So, disconnect is, is probably the main one. So... It must be, I'm thinking of you, uh, like on Mother's Day, it's got to be kind of odd to be such a deep, deep expert, both on an intellectual level, but also just on an intuitive, emotional level in what makes a relationship healthy and then be sort of bookended by your daughter and your mom at once. Yeah. It's a very ironic situation. I know. Like, like you could see each of them crystal clear and that that gives you a certain power, I guess, to understand the dynamic, but we're all still somehow vulnerable in that, that only you can change you. You can't change them. 
And so it's up to them to change. They don't want to. And so that's where we are. They don't want to. They can't. Oh, they're very, um, they're absolutely sure that the mistake is happening on the other end. Right. Um, last two questions. So the name of the podcast is Things I Did Learn in School. From any of these experiences, growing up, getting kidnapped, watching a country that no longer exists collapse, raising challenging kids, becoming a therapist. Is there any, if you were looking to say about the biggest things that I've learned that I didn't learn in school would be what? I honestly learned so little at school. So <laughs> the list is long. <laughs> Pick one. Well, I certainly didn't didn't know. And I don't know whether it's but just my individual path. And I'll, the parenting will be that complicated. I never knew that just loving your kid is not a guarantee that this process will be mutual. That's deep. And I and I I think that's true. That's deep. And I also learned well then one thing I there was a lot of idealism taught to us at school. Mm. And I hate idealism. Mm. I think it can be a pretty dangerous place. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I learned how not to be an idealist. I don't know whether it's relevant, you know, relevant to your program or not. It is. Okay. They don't teach. They don't teach not being an idealist in school. If anything, encourage the opposite. At least it is in my schools. Last and final question. All guests get to ask me a question if they want. And even though we see each other all day long, you're still allowed to ask me a question on the show. Ask you a question. If you have any, you don't have to. It's an option you can exercise if you choose to do so. What's the most important thing you 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 learn after school, not in school? Me. Yeah, in three words. The first place to look at solving a problem, this is more than three words, is in solving yourself. Yeah. But that's the most difficult place <laughs> to look into, right? So much easier to look at you and point my finger at you. Yes, it is. I mean, I'm just stealing from Tolstoy. You know, Spielberg said, everybody steals, just steal from the best. And Tolstoy said, everybody thinks mm-hmm. about changing the world and very few people think well, about yeah, changing but, themselves. The, well, but again, you know, if you if you read the diary of his wife, Sophia, yeah. Yeah. the guy did not have a ton of insights for himself. So here yeah. we go. Yes, it's a right. classic. And so that you have to separate yeah. the art from the person. But right. here's a person who is a genius at depicting the foibles of others. Mm-hmm. Literally a genius and unable to apply that same rich lens on himself. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll see you in five minutes. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. It's the only guest of mine I can say. I'll see you in bed. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So, пока. Чего делаю? Leave, пока. right? Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber that helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.